0: Hey. Hey.
1: All right, all right. Welcome to the Kavis Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Kavis Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII, delivering the advantage.
2: Coming up, a special report at sea aboard the aircraft carrier USS George Washington. The ship emerged in May from the longest ever overhaul of any U.S. aircraft carrier and is working up to return next year as the U.S. Navy's fourth deployed carrier in Japan. You'll hear from the ship's captain and others we talked to during a two-day embark at sea. But first,
1: a look at this week's Naval News. Taiwan unveiled its first domestically produced submarine on September 28th in a christening ceremony at Kaohsiung, named Haikun. The attack submarine features an X-plane stern configuration similar to Dutch and Swedish subs. The Haikun, scheduled for delivery in late 2024, is the first of a planned eight submarines costing about U.S. $1.5 billion. The Chinese reaction to the unveiling of the submarine was dismissive. The sub, said a spokesman for the National Defense Ministry, is nothing but a broom attempting to hold back the tide.
2: The Pentagon said September 28th that Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps naval forces aimed a laser at a U.S. Marine Corps AH AH-1Z Viper helicopter flying in international airspace over the Persian Gulf on September 27th. A statement from U.S. 5th Fleet in Bahrain said the Iranian vessels shone a laser multiple times at the helicopter, but caused no injuries. The Hilo is from Marine Medium Tilt Squadron 162, flying from the
1: assault ship USS Bataan. U.S. Navy unmanned service vessels exercised with the Japanese Navy for the first time on September 27. The Japanese frigate Kumano, joined with the Ghost Fleet USV's Ranger and Mariner, along with the Toral Combat Ship USS Oakland, for a series of maneuvers in Sagami Wan or Sagami Bay.
2: Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro on September 28th issued three letters of censure to retired Navy rear admirals over the fuel leak at Red Hill Bulk Fuel Storage Facility on Oahu in Hawaii. Letters of instruction were issued to two other rear admirals, along with non-punitive censure letters to seven Navy captains. The punishments were handed out as Joint Task Force Red Hill prepares to defuel the huge storage facility beginning in October. The leak contaminated the aquifer below the fuel depot and led to the decision
1: to close the storage site. In not really old ship news, the Littoral Combat Ships USS Detroit LCS-7 and USS Little Rock LCS-9 each held decommissioning ceremonies on September 29th at Naval Station Mayport in Florida. The two Freedom class ships were in service for just under seven and six years, respectively. Unusually, both ships were deployed and operating in the U.S. Fourth Fleet until only a few days before the ceremonies. The Detroit and Little Rock are expected to be made available for foreign military sales. And in new ship news, another littoral combat
2: ship, the Independence class USS Augusta LCS 34. Was commissioned September 30th in a ceremony at Eastport, Maine. The Augusta will be homeported at San Diego. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News.
1: Okay, well, recently we had a pretty good opportunity, unusual opportunity lately, to go to sea aboard an aircraft carrier, in this case, the USS George Washington. In May, the GW was redelivered to the Navy following the longest ever shipyard overhaul of an aircraft carrier more than six and a half years at Newport News Shipbuilding's Yard in Virginia for her midlife refueling and complex overhaul, or RCOH. All Nimitz-class carriers are taken out of service around the middle of their planned 50-year careers for a one-time refueling of their two nuclear reactors, as well as major upgrades to the propulsion plant, combat systems, aircraft handling systems, and much more. GW was the sixth ship in the class to undergo RCOH, but a variety of factors combined to form a perfect storm that stretched the work far beyond the planned four-year schedule. And even more attention was focused on the carrier when three crew members in separate incidents committed suicide in April 2022.
2: But like a fresh breeze, the George Washington and her 2,800 sailor crew now are focused on getting the ship back into service. Systems continue to be checked out, Crew qualifications are underway, and all eyes are refocused on 2024. When the ship is to leave Virginia, head around the southern tip of South America and meet up with the current Jap- Japan-based carrier USS Ronald Reagan at San Diego in June 2024 for a turnover. After that, the GW will head back to Japan to become the U.S. Navy's fourth deployed aircraft carrier in the Western Pacific a role that GW had from 2008 to 2015 before being relieved by the Reagan.
1: I was on board the ship for two days in mid-September while the GW was carrying out carrier qualifications for naval aviators off the U.S. East Coast. We start our interviews with Captain Brent Gott, the carrier's commanding officer, call sign Hollywood, who filled us in on what's happening now and what's ahead for the George Washington.
3: We're simply just trying to reestablish what it's like to be an operational warship at sea uh, and, and some of the basic things that you do when you go out to sea uh, and we're not even quite talking about that war fighting piece of it yet. It's just, it's sailors that have come into the Navy and haven't had a chance to operate their equipment at sea. For some, they're, they're, they're plenty busy in the shipyard, but for many of them, let's say uh, in the uh, Intel department for instance. Um, They don't, our ISs or CTRs, they don't have a lot of time or they don't have the ability to really work at their rating in the shipyard like they will at sea. So for a lot of our sailors, it's just getting out to sea and saying, this is what it's like to be a sailor at sea, this is what it's like to practice my rating at sea. That's one piece of it. And also for some of them, what does it feel, uh, and you, I don't think I said this on the one sea while you guys were here, but a couple days ago, and I've said this in the last couple hundred ways, when you get underway, um, there's normally about the four or five day period where you're exhausted because you're, you're, you're working for 16 to 17 hours a day. And so your body has to get used to that. You just, a lot of them don't know what that feels like yet because they've never been to sea before. And these are the first few underways that they're doing. So they're really learning to acclimate to what life at sea is like because it's just different. It's different than being uh, back at, uh, at, the, um, at the naval station. So that's part of what we're doing. And really right now, what it's about is getting out operating, uh, operating the systems, uh, executing the mission, which right now is to uh, support the fleet and conducting carrier qualifications uh, for either squadrons or for the fleet replacement squadron uh, or for air wings. Uh, And then also while we're doing that, because fundamentally that's what we're here to do, launch and recover aircraft in support of our nation's strategic and operational objectives, Uh, we're also uh, doing other milestone events, for instance in combat systems and the work that we're going to do um, you know you have uh, aircraft contacts that fly in this is all of course um, simulated in the sense that it's not an adversary but it's someone that we're doing training with and it's a detective engage can we find the contact can we, can we detect it and can we engage it if we chose to do so so we're doing all those things as well um, and and then pushing forward through the rest of the year to prepare for uh, 2024 in april when we depart uh, to head to san diego and this period of time is so critical for all the things that we're doing, the milestone events and the different evaluations and inspections we have to get, it's, it's critical to be able to work through these because that is going, that's how our Navy measures, are you ready uh, to go to, to, to San Diego, turn over to Reagan and then go to Japan. And as time goes on, there's not a lot of white space. I tell my sailors all the time, we don't have a lot of white space left. There's not a lot of places where we can fit things in. We have to be efficient and effective. Uh, understanding that there's that pressure there, but the pressure's good need you need you to work work hard but but do it right the first time because we don't have a lot of time to make those uh, mistakes and to fill in, in in different on different days or different weeks because every week literally every day every week until we leave for San Diego there is something that we're doing in support of that mission to depart to get to San Diego turn over to Reagan and then to, to deploy for Japan as the Ford deployed naval forces Japan aircraft here So that's kind of where we're at right now, those are some of the challenges that we're facing as a team.
1: Can you talk a bit about some of the changes that we made to this ship? So some of it is external. You can see you have a new mast. It's in a different place. Mm-hmm. Uh, some structural changes to the ship's appearance on the island. Um, you have, you have some, some new sensors. We've been down a combat direction center. We've seen a lot of uh, That's all new. A lot of new systems upgrades. You talk about what is more improved, what, what what is bigger and better now about GW than before before she went into the RCS?
3: You know, sort just in generalities. I mean, I would say one a big part of the refueling and complex overhaul is the work that you do in the propulsion plant. So obviously um, it's a refresh for the plant because the the ship is designed to operate for at least another 25 years. So that piece of it, and I can't go into really the details about that because of the the confidentiality of uh, the work that we did down there, but that's a significant portion of the work that we did. And then also some of the things that you saw while you're on board. I would say um, fundamentally the combat system suite uh, and what we're able to do um, with uh, our sensors, what we're able to detect and engage. uh, Those are all things that uh, were uh, enhanced during this uh, six-and-a-half-year refueling and complex overhaul.
1: So this is a different sort of workup. Normally when you come out of the yard, you're, you're in the basic phase, you're working up to deploy, there's a, there's a wing out there somewhere that gets a, gets assigned to you. Yes, sir. Um, you, you marry up with them and you work up together throughout counter 2 and all this in the are actually deploy. This is different because your air wing is in Japan. Carrier Air Wing 5 It's operating right now in the SSR. Yes, sir and you're going you're to go around, you're going to go around South America, you're going to meet up with the Reagan in San Diego, but eventually you're going to... How, how is this whole transfer working? This is a non-standard working. So with the wing, with the transfer, with the turnover of the Reagan, mm-hmm. and bringing the wing on board, everybody will look and say, well, it's you and the Reagan, but it's you and the Reagan, you carry on five. Yes, sir. And how, how is that all working?
3: Well, sir, first of all, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I'd say fundamentally the Navy is built to adapt and overcome. That's what we do. So it's non-standard, but yet it's not something that hasn't been done before, nor is it something that we're intimidated by, nor do we think we can't accomplish it. I would say this. A lot of the training that we do across the training continuum across the force is standardized amongst the communities. So, for example, what I mean is that the training that the air wing would do here uh, in, in Norfolk, Virginia or in Oceana um, is the same training that the air wings uh, on the West Coast are doing and the same training that they're getting. Uh, and we do that for a reason, because ideally we should be able to take an air wing anywhere in the world and say, we're gonna take that air wing that's normally with this strike group or with this carrier and we are going to put it on that carrier with that strike group. And after a couple days of just you know getting acquainted and figuring out who's who, we should be able to go operate at a very high level. That's really how our force is designed. We can plug and play and put people in different and organizations in different places with other other organizations based on the standardization of the training that we do across the force. It's not like the West Coast gets just different, different training than the East Coast. It's not like the helicopter squadrons in Mayport or Jacksonville get different training than the ones in San Diego at Naval, uh, Naval Station North Island. So we can take, and, and we can inject that group and then we should be able to still operate at a very high level. But
1: what's the timeline? How, how is this working?
3: Well, the timeline is-, is um, You're gonna leave. You're, you're we're gonna leaving. leave, yes sir. So we'll, we'll, we'll do some work with an air wing here. In fact, in uh, December of this year, we're gonna do cyclic ops with CAG7. Um, so they're gonna come out and we're gonna do some work with them. Um, we'll continue to work with them into uh, early 2024. And then when we leave in April of 24, leave Norfolk, uh, we'll go around Cape Horn, and then we will uh, take station uh, in San Diego uh, at the end of July. And that's when the turnover with the Reagan will commence. There will be some sailors that are uh, a part of the Reagan team that when they get to San Diego they will actually um, detach from Reagan and they will embark uh, George Washington and become a member of our crew and vice versa. We'll have members of George Washington uh, that will then depart the ship that that day and they'll walk uh, on the brow onto Reagan and they'll become part of that crew. Uh, and so we've worked through that and we've done that work with uh, Navy Personnel Command in Millington, Tennessee, um, and with our team, with Reagan's team, with CTF 70. And we've gone through that list. Uh, that's called the Master Crew List. And we know exactly now the names of the individuals that will be doing that.
1: Well, the very extended time in the shipyard and the suicides focused much high level attention on the treatment of sailors during what is widely considered to be a trying time in any ship's life. We asked Captain Gott if there's been a change since the ship returned to service in May 2023.
3: Um, when we got underway uh, from the shipyard and got back to Naval Station Norfolk, it was a very short underway, it was three days, 72 hours, just jam-packed with different drills and different exercises and things that we were doing and testing. When we got back, uh, I had a couple of sailors approach me and you know, they said, hey, Captain, um, I, I just can I talk to you for a second? I said, sure, I always have time for you. And they said, I, j- I just can't believe that we got out. I really didn't think it was gonna happen and that was one of those moments as a command officer you know and as just a human being um, as a person as a father as a husband like it it was just so emotional for me because you could see a little glimmer of the hope in their eye that for a long time that we hadn't seen because it had been so long in the shipyard and so to be able to see that to share that moment with them was so powerful and we've only built upon that since then i mean if you think about late may to june july august you know we're talking about three and a half months ago but it's, it's, it's visceral. You can feel the change in the crew. I mean, sailors, young people are really starting to believe, like I made the right decision uh, to join the Navy, to do this. I'm getting to go out to sea. I'm tired, yes, but it's, there's a purpose now to what I'm doing and, and, and why I joined. And so uh, it's, it's definitely something, and it's tough too when you're in it every day um, because I see them every day, but when people come on board that came on board like four months ago, when they before they leave, they come up to me and they said, "Wow, it's just different. The ship is different right now. You can feel the energy amongst the sailors throughout the uh, the, the ship, and that's just very, you know, encouraging and promising, right? Um, I heard a quote once. Sometimes, you know, hope is better that better than or more important than happiness. Uh, our pastor said that at church, and you see that now, right? That there's a certain level of hope around the ship that things are going to continue to get better, and we're going to continue to build upon that."
1: We also had the chance to sit down with Command Master Chief Randy Swanson, the senior enlisted leader for the ship's sailors. Of the more than 2,000 sailors aboard, many worked on the ship during the overhaul, but many also have reported on board only recently. We asked the CMC about his new sailors and the crew's attitude.
4: We're always ever changing, right? So we have an influx of a bunch of sailors checking in and, and in dock, you, know, you know, I asked the sailors, hey, how many of you have heard of George Washington? You know, and this, that, and the other. And then I, I, I'm like, I'd, I'd be really interested in your feedback after being here for a month or two, or what your thoughts of the command are. And surprisingly, um, I mean, I even had a sailor in here earlier today, just that that was giving me that report back saying, CMC, this place is awesome. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I understand that stuff happened in the past, but. I don't see any issues here. I'm just like, wow, okay. You got a really good, wh- whoever you're working for is doing a really good job, right? Um, but just when, when I'm interacting with the crew and when you see them every single day and you see the smiles on their face, you could tell that the crew is moving on, you know, and, and, and looking, looking forward to what we have coming up, which is, is a big deal is that we're going for deployed naval forces. And it's not a lot of time between now and then either. So um, we have, you know, being here part of the crew right before, you know, I I checked in in December of last year and then we ramped up for sea trials in May and first time getting out to the, you know, out to sea, seeing the emotion on the sailors going through that, um, you know, I was very proud to be a part of the team and seeing them, you know, first time to be out to sea. I remember my first time, you got to see that was many moons ago, but that's something that they'll never forget. All the hard work that they put in all the time, all their patience finally came to a point where now they're out. Now we pull into Naval Station Norfolk, and now we're operational care like the other ones out there. And then, you know, to see the pride our sailors have wearing their George Washington covers and, and being a part, you know, our ship looks really good. And, uh, you know, we're out in the fleet with them. And then now it's just... Getting back out to sea, um, doing our different tests, doing our um, our, our assessments, and, and actually learning our jobs, and you know that's uh, well, that's what I'm excited for the crew is, for the first time in a very long time, they're actually learning their jobs. They're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing as sailors. That brings on a different set of stressors, right? But um, to me, those are healthy stressors that sailors go through, where you know they're being challenged. They have to be away from home, so you know that, that's a concern for for a certain period, So we work through that with them, um, but knowing that our team is going to be responsible for bringing this national asset to the to the front lines at FTNF is to me is an honor, right? And um, we have a big responsibility to get our crew as ready as we can before we get there. The CMCs on the carriers were real tight. Um, we definitely provide lessons learned and. Have a, a floor for passing information. Um, we we take those lessons learned, like you know, with the housing and building, and how is it going to work? With how did you do this? How did you do that? Um, I know at the most senior uh, senior level, we're talking about how how to make things better. If you know for the crew, like they they immediately went and moved out in town and didn't have to stay on board the aircraft care and stuff like that. I can't really speak on what they're exactly they're doing over there um but i know the relationship i have with the cmc over there and the cmc network on you know and we are, we're always asking questions and, and backing each other up on things
1: well as captain gott said much of the new work done during the overhaul was to the ship's nuclear-powered propulsion plant meaning it's highly classified and off limits for discussion but among the major upgrades elsewhere were changes to the ship's combat direction center, the carrier air traffic control center, and much more. We sat down with combat systems officer, Commander Jason Hughes, to talk about some of the upgrades to the ship.
0: Uh, As we come out of the maintenance phase, a lot of upgrades. As you mentioned, uh, our entire space got gutted. The entire system we had in there before is replaced with the latest, greatest uh, uh, ship self-defense system or SSDS uh, suite in there, Uh, and entirely new upgrades to our weapon systems as well. Uh, so that long uh, R2H period gives us the time to really do some of these major upgrades to, to the ship. Uh, so as we come out of the uh, shipyard, uh, we have what we call a long basic phase where we uh, then continue to uh, test and integrate those systems and train our sailors to employ those systems. Uh, so we're in our beginning phases. We have events that we do to, to do that. Uh, during this underway, we were doing what we call C-squat, uh, and during that period for C-Squat, uh, we Com- have...
1: Combat System Qualification.
0: Combat System Qualification, yes, sir. So we have uh, scheduled uh, aircraft to come out and do various simulated runs, uh, and then run through the, uh, the gamut to verify that our systems are properly responding uh, to those various uh, simulated threat profiles. And then also to train our crew so that they can understand what their indications would be and train to, to simulate what we call a detect to engage, to detect that threat uh, from the very uh, earliest onset through the various sensors and then go through the motions to ensure that our weapon systems are properly uh, respond and are employed to uh, defeat that threat.
1: What, do you, what is this ship better at doing now than before the overhaul?
0: In terms of uh, having the latest greatest systems, uh, our older system uh, had a different method of cooling, uh, so uh, uh, the method of cooling now makes it a lot easier to maintain. Uh, The systems also has the latest uh, software upgrades, uh, allows us to be more agile if we need to do upgrades and change to those systems. So we can very quickly adapt it and change it to uh, the potential changes and threats out there to ensure our system uh, is capable to to perform the way we need to and how we need to. Uh, The other changes that have really come along that is uh, uh, just also a reconfigure of the space. Uh, continually changing the way that we best ensure that folks are able to integrate across all the different watch stations that we have in there. Uh, whether that's the TAO, the TAO or Tactical Action Officer is the primary person who has weapons release authority by the, uh, by the CO. Uh, but positioning other seats like our, our air missile defense, our surface, uh, our, uh, um, our various link operators that maintain the various links between aircraft and ships, uh, our air intercept controllers, and as well as our defensive weapons coordinator who ensures that our weapons systems are worked. So it's a reconfiguration of space so that it is positioned and set up in a way uh, that all our operators can work together as one team with the best situational awareness to ensure that we employ the systems in the best defense of the ship.
1: You talked about um, all carriers are a little bit different. Yes, sir. Because the nature of it, they're big. How often can you do upgrades? You talked about your current configuration is quite similar to that of Theodore Roosevelt CVM 71 of the way yes sir um, but but not 72 can you talk to us about up software upgrades um, apparently it's a whole lot easier to upgrade now than it used to be you can you can jump to the next phases easier
0: yes I, I don't know particularly what 72 system capabilities are installed I think it's a slightly older version of what we have here but uh, absolutely you know it's um, older systems were very purpose-built, uh, meaning that uh, whether General Dynamics or various companies would write very specific code in older software languages like Fortran and so forth, and they are very purpose-built uh, uh, for what they did. So the upgrade process was not very agile, right, major changes. A lot of the systems now uh, are more COTS-based, runs off typical software, so it allows us to be more agile, to be able to update that software without having to go through uh, what we call really the old school waterfall uh, process in terms of software and system development.
1: So commercial off the shelf, costs.
0: Yes, sir. Absolutely.
1: We just walked through your space. Again, it's a fully rebuilt space. You've got a big false floor, a lot of wiring under that floor, there's a lot of wiring over overhead. Yes, sir. But that's always the case. But this is a much more reconfigurable space yes, sir. than what you had before.
0: Yes, sir. So this is what we envisioned long ago is, is not only we talked about how long it takes to do major system upgrades and it's, it's usually timing it up with the major shipyard period because we need to ensure that our ships are capable through their basic phase of deployment cycle. Uh, so what we've done is have changed it to where we configure the space the way we see that we need it for what we intend to go do, but if we need to change it because of uh, new threats and we deploy new capabilities and systems install uh, to uh, provide that situational awareness or to manage that threat uh, allows us to more easily rearrange the space to add those systems or if we see that the flow of information between the different people or watch in there that we need to change it, we can move things around so that we can more easily uh, have that communication and information flow. Also allows us to reconfigure it because you know, we don't do anything without our, our international partners today. All right, So for the spaces we walk through, Right. We will certainly have partners from other nations. Uh, so ensuring that we can reconfigure it to accommodate uh, our international partners that we work with every day as well.
1: So um, you're going to go to the Pacific. You're just going to go to Japan. Um, you've just come out of the yard on the Atlantic coast. Yes, sir. There are certain electronic warfare systems and other systems, communications link, different different electronic fittings that are particular to the European theater, particular to the Pacific, Western Pacific theater. Yes, sir. You, haven't, you don't have all those upgrades yet, but that's where you're going.
0: So some of those upgrades are still in progress. Um, so we've come out with a certain set of, and I should say, uh, let me rephrase it by saying that uh, the contract period that goes into what systems will get installed during RCUH happens very, very early. So a lot of that happened back in 2014, 2015, 2016. So we come out with a basic set of systems that we need that any carrier is going to have. And this is as we go through this basic phase Uh, as also as we go through that we work to put additional systems in uh, and to integrate those systems as you say to uh, ensure that we're able to uh, have what we need to deal with specific issues and specific theaters Uh, some of those are still ongoing and some of those will be uh, completed when the ship gets over to San Diego and does a crew swap with the Reagan
1: Now, also, this this ship's been in the yard for a long time, six and a half half years in the yard. Not everybody's been here for six and a half years, but still. uh, You've just come out. You've been underway for maybe, what, 100 days or so since the the redelivery. Your people had to work on the ship, but your operations specialists, your tactical action officers, everybody had to maintain proficiency through that entire period. How did they do that?
0: Yes, sir. The key thing is, is uh, sending our folks out on the other ships that are operational, whether just doing local operations or send them out on units that are actually out on deployment. Uh, So that is how we really work it. It's that coordination between the ships to send folks out to maintain their proficiency. So through a lot of that long yard period, yes, we had a lot of sailors that come straight from boot camp and then for long periods of time, unfortunately not being able to employ the skills that they gained through school. Uh, so to do that, we'll send sailors out to uh, either uh, the Reagan while they're doing their uh, deployment cycle. Uh, they come back and they see firsthand what this ship's eventually going to have to do, or we send them on local operations so they can gain proficiency in training. Same thing then, now as we are now out to sea, a little over 100 days since we came out through RCUH, uh, as another carrier is now going through a shorter uh, ship uh, yard period for some upgrades and modifications, uh, we are bringing a lot of their sailors on board, so now they bring uh, that proficiency, that know-how and how to do things after just coming off deployment and help train our folks so they understand, while they may have the basics of how systems are done, uh, they don't have the first-hand knowledge on how to deploy it in terms of the theater. So we gain that experience uh, from those sailors coming from the other carriers that just came back, and as well, it allows those sailors to maintain their proficiency when they go back for their ship. So. Uh, really the key thing is, is what we do that is, is it's really helping each other across the waterfront to ensure that we build uh, that best situational awareness and learn how other carriers have done it. Uh, if we operate in a bubble, we may learn and think what, what our best way is to do it, uh, but we may not be employing all the best ways. So it's learning how other carriers or other ships have learned to do it and adapt to some of the things that they've learned or we share some of the things that they've learned on that. Uh, the other thing, the key in that is uh, training is key, right? Our personnel are our number one asset, and training them is, is what we need to do. So we have a lot of training capabilities around to do that. Uh, some of them here in local and damneck, send the folks up to Wallops Island, other training facilities as well. So through our shipyard period, through our basic phase, we send folks to school to learn uh, particular systems. We send them to warfare trainers as a team so they can learn to build that proficiency as a team. And then come back on the ship and and apply those skills that they've learned uh, at the various schools and trainers we have around.
1: How did did you yourself do it? So for me coming
0: on board as a combat assistance officer so I'm not actually standing watch here so so a lot of what I get is just a lot of knowledge I've built over time Um, but I don't do that in a vacuum Uh, I very regularly reach out with the combat assistance officers across all the carriers if I have a question or something I'm uncertain of I'll reach out to my counterparts and say, hey, have you experienced this before? What have you done to, to, uh, to address this? Uh, it's constantly a learning thing. So we talk about systems development. And what I mentioned about how we had an old way of doing a very purpose-built waterfall display in terms of systems engineering, systems design, right? There's not a lot of agility in that. We've gone to a very agile process in terms of systems design development, software development. You've probably heard of uh, software, agile software development. Uh, We've got to be agile in our thinking, too, uh, to where if we have a thought of this is the way we've always done things, we're probably missing something. So the great thing is, as we look out and find how others have done things, we can learn new ways of doing things. And the other interesting thing is, is we constantly have to, you know, sailors are constantly rotating. Sailors, right, we may build them up and maybe they're the best person I have sitting over there as my AIC. But now it's time for them to rotate to shore. So I have to bring other sailors to build in. So they may be coming straight to boot camp. We have to build them up and start them over. I may have a sailor, we have sailors that have come straight from the rake and they come back and say, hey, you know, this is how we did it here uh, because of this theater, right? You need to think of different ways to do things. We bring that on board. Uh, but we have to be agile in our thinking because it may sometimes be the most junior sailor just came from boot camp, uh, may question the way we do something, they may realize that, you know what? They may not have a lot of experience but they make a good point, somebody from the outside looking in. So we have to be continually agile in in our training and development, learning new things, uh, trying to constantly stay within that OODA loop, uh, observe, orient, decide, and act, so that we can uh, best make sure that we are looking ahead in that fog of war uh, should this ship get there, so that we are best trained and ready and able uh, to deploy the ship, uh, defend it, and ensure that it can continue to execute its primary mission which is the, uh, ensuring that we can launch and recover aircraft uh, for whatever mission they may be tasked.
1: Well, the aircraft that operate from a carrier change. Over the 50 years, the ships are expected to be in service. Aircraft types rarely serve that long, and certain aircraft are retired while others enter service. One of the new aircraft George Washington will operate is the F-35 Charlie, the F-35C carrier-based variant of the Lightning II Joint Strike Fighter. We asked Commander Hughes if the ship was ready for the F-35.
0: We've not done much testing with F-35 yet. That's still to come. A lot of those systems are installed. Uh, It's just work working timing for that. Uh, So in in some of our future underways, we'll be bringing F-35s on deck. Start out with just touch and go, seeing that our our landing system and everything can can bring them in. And then other systems in terms of the capabilities uh, to support them. There's a lot of additional things that uh, we have to have on this ship to support the specifics in terms of uh, uh, um, the systems, or I should say, that are on board those F-35s. So testing those out, um, you know, entirely new combat suite. Uh, so it's the latest, greatest in terms of the software, the interface. Uh, some of our air radars have been upgraded uh, to the, some of the latest, greatest out there. Uh, Adding new capabilities to some of those. Uh, and Even our weapon systems uh, being upgraded in terms of the way they interface and the way they're employed uh, so that we have the, the latest systems out there.
1: As we said at the top, the George Washington was underway carrying out carrier qualifications. Car quals for naval aviators, a must for both new and veteran Navy flyers. While the F-18 Super Hornets had already completed their car quals when we got on board, the Greyhawks of Airborne Command and Control Squadron 120 were there with their E-2C and E-2D Hawkeye aircraft. VAW 120 is the Fleet Replacement Squadron, or RAG, training and qualifying new aviators, naval flight officers, flight technicians, and maintenance personnel to operate the Hawkeye before they head to the fleet. We took the opportunity to talk with VAW-120's commanding officer, Commander Dave Wilshire, callsign Pawn Shop, about his squadron and its mission. You'll be able to tell we're on a ship during this interview conducted just outside PryFly, the primary flight control station high in the island superstructure. Since the GW at the time was in a thick fog, and sounding her foghorn at regular frequencies. This is this is an interesting time for you. you. You are the fleet replacement squadron for the E2s, the Hawkeye. And you're transit transitioning from the E2Cs, the Charlies, the E2Ds, Deltas. Most of the squadrons at the moment are flying Deltas, the newer version, but you're still flying Charlies. So you have you have kind of a mixed squadron. I see on the flight deck, we've got Charlie's, we've got Deltas. Right. Um, how how is this working for you in this in this transition period? Um,
5: we've well, we, been we've been doing this for a number of years now. Uh, we first received E2Ds actually back when I was a lieutenant, when I was a FRS instructor. So that was about 2012-2013 uh, timeframe. Uh, so VAW-120 has always been a mixed squadron, and we're also the fleet replacement squadron for the C2 Greyhound as well. Um, so. It is, a, it is a time of change right now. Uh, we still have two uh, C2As with us right now, C2 Greyhounds, two, two CODs. Um, we are transitioning both of those uh, out of the squadron in October. Uh, the, Os- so the
1: Osprey is not
5: part of this? No, they're a separate wing. Uh, we won't get those, unfortunately. We're not uh, in charge of uh, training those pilots. But uh, So VW-120 will be out of the COD business, the carrier onboard delivery business in October. And then uh, we've got a few years left with uh, E2C. We're actually still training students and sending them out to the fleet. And then uh, we actually cross train uh, some French students as well. Uh, The French have uh, E2Cs and we still train their pilots at about two a year. Um, So we'll continue that for the next couple of years and then uh, even as the, uh, the you know, as far as the uh, US Navy pilots, we'll all transition to E2D eventually.
1: So you, you don't just do the flight crew, the, the, the pilot co-pilot, you do, you do all the electronics with
5: the non Oh yeah, pilots. yeah, we train the uh, Naval flight officers as well. Um, they're called uh, ABMs, basically Airborne Battle Managers. Um, and then uh, we'll continue to train them as well. Um, we've got a few left in E2C that we're still training. And uh, obviously most of them are E2D at this point.
1: talk a bit about the role of the Hawkeye. So for people who don't really understand it that much, I mean, you are a command and control module. You're a battlefield, you said, airborne battlefield manager. This is a really big part of the carrier strike group.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So our our primary mission is airborne command and control. Um, You know, it used to be uh, you'd hear airborne early warning a lot. E2D has kind of changed the game. Uh, we've got our hands in basically every mission set that the carrier strike group uh, does. Um, but yeah, airborne command and control, and uh, E2D has obviously given us a bunch, of, a bunch of capabilities that we didn't have in uh, E2C as well uh, to do that mission.
1: So we've been out um, a couple days here on the George Washington. You've, been, you've, you've had your students out um, doing a lot of cats and traps. Landing on the aircraft carrier, launching from the aircraft here, landing on the aircraft here, launching. From the aircraft. Repeat and repeat and repeat. Um, it's not easy. Um, well, I think a lot of your students you know, have, have been coming from flight simulators and um, training on land. And when you're at sea and uh, the boat is moving, it really actually is moving. It's not a simulation, and it's dark, um, and the lights really mean something. Um, I think it. I think it changes the, the dynamics from the. From this from the simulators the real thing uh can you talk a little bit about that we were watching last night it was quite a few bolters yeah sure um
5: you know that the e2 we don't have some of the landing aids that uh that other aircraft that land on the carrier do so uh, when we're flying this aircraft around the carrier we're doing it the same way we did it 50 years ago which is you know, we're getting behind the ship, and uh, we're looking outside. We're flying the meatball. We're looking at the actual landing area for Centerline, um, and this is a difficult aircraft to land on the ship. Um, our students, uh, we take them up to um, Wallops uh, NASA Wallops uh, Flight Facility up in Maryland. That's uh, where we do a majority of our field carrier landing practice, and uh, and they get about say about 200 passes um, at the field on a simulated carrier box with the lens beside the airfield Uh, and that's where the the real learning starts uh, on on how to land this this aircraft that is hard to fly uh, on the ship Um, obviously it's different uh, when they got it here behind the boat uh, their their landing area is moving where it's not on the field it's stationary so uh, that's a extra variable. Um, sometimes the winds can be uh, turbulent behind the ship, and then uh, as you saw the last couple of days, obviously the deck moving is a uh, is an added variable as well. Um, so when they come out in the Hawkeye to do it the first time, usually they have an instructor pilot in the right seat with them uh, that uh, is really there to coach them, uh, coach them through it the first day, um, and then after they get through that first day and that first night, um, they kind of dial back a little bit and uh, let them. Let them prove that they could do it on their own uh, for their for their qualification.
1: Between the flight crew and the, and the NFOs, how long does it take people to get through the syllabus? Um,
5: I'd say we're we're probably averaging about uh, six to eight months once they start, um, and that's uh, that's a ballpark, and that uh, you know that changes class to class and uh, and what we have going on. the The recent things that. Uh, you know, we talked about added capabilities with E2D, but uh, you might have seen a, a few of the E2Ds on the deck with a uh, with a probe sticking off the uh, top of the airplane. So, uh, In, for in-flight refueling, in-flight refueling. So uh, aerial refueling (AR), um, but we've we've added that into our syllabus as well, and uh, and we're training our students to uh, to aerial refuel uh, at the FRS now too. Uh, so that's added a little bit of time onto uh, the overall syllabus, but. Uh, But we're sending them out to the fleet, carrier qualified and uh, and and able to tank as well, which is uh, which is pretty huge.
4: Well, we're about to get on a
5: C2. You do some C2 training. The fleet's gonna go away within the next couple years. Is that bittersweet? Is it the end of an era? Um, it's bittersweet. I I uh I don't want to steal the uh, the C2 thunder because I guy am an E2 guy. It was uh. I was a uh, e2c uh growing up e2c department head and then uh, obviously e2d uh, uh co but um you know there's a little saying in our community it's in in cod we trust right <laughs> uh and uh and uh and we do we've trusted the cod for for a long time now and uh and their ability to get the mission done hopefully uh you know, I know out on the West Coast they've got the uh, they've got the ospreys now, and I, I think they're uh, I think they're doing well. Um, but I, I think it is a little a little bit bittersweet for the uh, for the VRC community to uh, to sundown their platform. A lot of my friends are uh, are cod pilots, and uh, anyway, I I feel privileged to have been a part of that. Um, you know, as we sundown and really we transition to uh, to to what the Air Wing is going to look like in the future. Uh, yeah. These things always happen, you know. I, I feel like the Navy we, we probably went through the the same thing when the S3 transitioned. You know, uh, you know. I, I remember some of those some of those aviators ended up in the E2 community. Some of them uh, ended up in the uh, VFA community, and uh, you know, some of them are are still in the Navy. Uh, you know, I've got uh, got friends that are still in the Navy that flew the S3 that are uh, still going from job to job. So. Um, so this isn't the first time we've done it, and yeah. uh, I think it'll work itself out.
1: So those were just some of the people we talked to on board this ship. It was a great experience. And before we go, I need to say thank you to Lieutenant Commander Patricia and Ensign Hannah Smith, and the entire Public Affairs Department of the USS George Washington for their support during our embark, as well as Commander Don Stankas of Naval Air Forces Atlantic. Your efforts on our behalf were much appreciated.
0: Now hear this. Now hear this.
1: All right. Well, Mr. Civello, along with many Americans, is simply becoming fed up. Fed up indeed. I
2: considered squawking about being more transparent on LCS. We're discussing the need to talk more about cruiser modernization costs or the need to understand why our Japan-based carrier didn't get underway in response to PLAN exercises but I just couldn't bring myself to care this week. War rages on in Europe. Chinese continue to push unreasonable and unlawful maritime claims. The cyber domain is as unpredictable and ungoverned as ever. All while more than 300 flag and general officer nominations wait for Senate approval. And a group of less than two dozen House Republicans hold the Congress and the nation hostage. This past week, the world witnessed a laughable, Republican presidential debate. The House voted to reduce the pay of the Secretary of Defense to $1. Former President Trump faces yet another set of legal issues. The Biden campaign has developed a strategy to ensure, get this, that the president doesn't trip in public. And as we tape this podcast, the possibility of a multi-week government shutdown seems to be a very real likelihood. Chris, I'm worried. Worried we aren't focused, Worried we aren't learning the right lessons, worried we aren't moving fast enough, and worried as a nation we just aren't serious. Arguing about ship numbers, decommissionings, and money spent on overhauls is important, but at times it feels like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. National security challenges and underappreciated opportunities are nothing new, but damn it, we need to up our game. It's hard to imagine developing a plan to compete with the Russians, the Chinese, and other adversaries when passing appropriation bills and advising and consenting on nominations has become fodder for political stunts. Grow up, Congress. Grow up, party leaders. Please put the needs of the nation above your
1: political gain. But most importantly, please just do better. Amen, brother. Can't say any more than that. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vagamoradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Kavish Ships podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII, delivering the advantage.
2: Be sure to follow us at Kavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud and Spotify.
1: I'm Chris Cervello and I'm Chris Kavis. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.
0: Hey. Hey.